Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. In 1812, Pennsylvania state legislators contemplated something that most Americans would now find completely unimaginable. Demolishing Independence Hall in Philadelphia, converting the site to a series of building lots, and using the proceeds to fund construction of a new state house in Harrisburg. Fortunately, Philly's local leaders pushed back against state officials and preserved this historic landmark for future generations, allowing visitors to commune with the ghosts of the founding generation who had taken a leap in the dark toward independence and later designed the new constitution. But saving Independence Hall, and indeed any historic structure, wasn't just about defending the past. It was also about defining the future. On today's episode, Whitney Martinko joins me to discuss why Americans in the 18th and early 19th centuries battled over the preservation of historic sites and how capitalism shaped the choices and opportunities available to them. Martinko is an associate professor of history at Villanova University and the author of the new book, Historic Real Estate, Market Morality and the Politics of Preservation in the Early United States. And as she explains, what gets saved and what gets destroyed is a lot more complicated than you might think. As always, we want to say a big thank you to our longtime listeners for dropping by and a big hello to our new subscribers. And with that, let's preserve Historic Real Estate with Whitney Martinko. Now I'm ready. It's all ready to go. Now you know my now you know my tricks. Yep. Uh, Whitney, you grew up in southeastern Ohio uh, near Chillicothe, and in southeastern Ohio there are a number of earthworks built by uh, ancient indigenous peoples um, that um, you may have seen when you were a kid. I'm sure you did. Uh, you know, I was fortunate when I was a kid to see some of the mounds built uh, in the western part of the state where I'm from, and so I'm wondering if that. Uh, if seeing those mounds or growing up in that region really inspired you to write this book about historic preservation in uh, the early Republic. Yeah, thanks, Jim. I'm always happy to start talking about Chillicothe, Ohio, where I grew up. I, I think I did become interested in history by growing up in the region and seeing indigenous earthworks. What, when I was younger, was called Mound City. The mound is nearby. Um, Chillicothe is also the first, was the first and third capital of Ohio. So it's an area that's very rich in, in history and historical consciousness. And, and in fact, you know, I really never thought of those earthworks in terms of historic preservation until much later in graduate school. And I was trying to get away from an old topic that I was interested in, which was uh, a, a project that I had looked at historical memory of what is called Tory Row in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I had written a senior thesis on that. And I thought, okay, I want to work on a project that is something I've always interested in, but it's totally different from thinking about historical memory or about the built environment. So I started looking into the history of indigenous earthworks that I'd seen growing up and realized, in fact, that it was part of the same broader conversation about historic preservation in the late 18th century and in the 19th century. Um, and so it was really those interests that I saw together growing up in early Ohio that somehow I came right back around to it um, by the time I was in graduate school. And that was one of the, one of the ways that I got into this, this topic and saw just how old conversations were about historic preservation, what we would call historic preservation. Well, I want to pick up on that point a little bit because, you know, as you know, I work at Mount Vernon and, um, you know, a, a common narrative is that 
Americans' fascination with historic preservation begins with the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, or or in a period thereabouts in the mid eighteen fifties, eighteen sixties, when the MVLA forms to save Mount Vernon for the American people. Really, what you're saying though in this book is those conversations are much older, and they they begin almost immediately after independence, uh, and Americans are thinking about historic preservation, and so. You know, can you can you sort of give us a sense of of what Americans are thinking in the late 18th century, and and what do they mean by historic preservation? Why does that matter to them? Yes. So, like you say, Americans, a lot of Americans who are living in the new nation in the 1780s are thinking about historic preservation, and they do use that word. They they use the word preservation um, to speak about trying to make architecture or sort of built structures permanent in their minds and in their communities. So, you know, what they're really interested in is twofold, I would say. One is that they see structures like indigenous mounds, like houses, churches. They see these structures as historic sites that connect them to an American past. In their minds, indigenous earthworks connect them to what they call an ancient past. They see colonial structures, like those townhouses and churches, as as tangible remnants of a colonial past. And they even see buildings that are building in the new nation as historic as well. They see they see these structures as ones that are historic in the sense of connecting them to a particular moment in time. So they're interested in having this connection to the past and in making structures permanent to really make visible what they would call sort of a trajectory of improvement, a a progressive sense of history that moves through stages, Um, again, ancient, colonial, and national. So this historical consciousness is one that looks to the past, but really um, sort of continues through their present day and into the future. So they're interested in historic architecture for that historical consciousness, but they're also interested in historic sites because they are real estate. They are land and they are buildings that are very much a part of the growing towns and growing economies of the early nation. So they're interested in historic sites because they think they're places that afford Americans the opportunity to work out the tangible answer to a question that has become central in the early nation to them. And that is what is the relationship between private interests and the public good? Mm-hmm. So this is a, this is a much older question. This question did not come up in the early United States. It had been one circulating in, in Europe, in North America, well before 1776. But, but these sites that are embedded in local economies and societies give them the chance to say, okay, how should we, treat a church building that is owned by a private entity, but is valued by an entire community. Mm -hmm. Well, how does that play out? And maybe, you know, you can give us an example from Philadelphia or, you know, going Mm -hmm. back to the shores of the Muskegon River, thinking about the creation of Marietta in the early Republic, Mm -hmm. you know, where people are trying to, as you say, value uh, private interests uh, versus the public good. Right. So 
um, I could choose any number of sites in, in the, the early decades, right, from, from Marietta, Ohio, to Philadelphia, to Boston. Um, maybe the most famous site that we could think about for a moment would be what we would call Independence Hall. Mm-hmm. In the 1810s, it was known, this building was known as the old Pennsylvania State House. It had been built in the 1730s as the colonial, uh, the seat of the colonial assembly in Philadelphia. The, the capital had moved to Harrisburg by the 1810s, and the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania had decided that it was going to sell the old Pennsylvania State House. And residents of the city of Philadelphia said, wait, you can't, you can't sell this building. And if you do, you should sell it to the city, right? This is, this is our, our building. Our city council meets here. There's a plot of green land right behind it. And the state legislator said, no, we're going to sell it for as much as we can because we need to build a nice new state house in Harrisburg. We're going to sell it for building lots. Um, we're going to tear down the building and build, build in the park um, and, and facilitate development. So there got to be a real debate among leaders in Philadelphia and some ordinary citizens in Philadelphia and state legislators in the, the General Assembly. And so the debate there was saying, well, what really is the public interest? Is it having a nice state house in Harrisburg? Mm-hmm. On the one hand, that is the public interest for citizens of the Commonwealth. On the other hand, there are all these citizens in Philadelphia who want fresh air that is provided by this historic park, who want to feel a tangible connection to the place where the Declaration of Independence was signed and the Constitution was debated. That's also a public good. And in fact, citizens of Philadelphia said, our local public good here in Philadelphia is also for the good of all citizens of this nation, right? Because all of, all of the people who come to Philadelphia today and in the future will want to see the site um, as a historic one that has importance to all you know, citizens of, of the world, mm-hmm. in fact, they would say. So that's a, a, a debate where we can see two very different conceptions of public interest coming into play as well of, of course, the charge of, well, it's just really your private interest um, that you just, you want a nice state house to work in, right? You want a really nice building for Harrisburg. You're not really interested in the good of all. You're interested in your own profit. And that's a consistent point of contention among people living in the early 19th mm-hmm. century. Well, I mean, it's really interesting because the, you know, the state officials would, would be arguing, I think, as you suggest, that it is in the public interest that they sell this property, they removed to Harrisonburg, they built the best state house uh, that they possibly can, but then your local actors on the ground who and the city you know, councilors and whatnot are resisting this are saying, well, no, actually, you're you're just trying to get the most bang for your buck, and, and you've got a, a mm-hmm. private sort of uh, greedy capitalistic motive here as opposed to... Um, you know, even even beyond thinking about venerating what happened in Independence Hall, you're you're just at mm-hmm. base level thinking about yourself as a private actor in the market. Exactly, and you see this um, criticism that developed really in the 1810s in in newspapers in um, political conversations. You see it grow and grow, particularly in moments where some people seem to be making a lot of money mm-hmm. and others seem to be financially suffering. So the 1830s is another moment and it's a moment of increased real estate, real estate speculation 
among private developers. And so in the 1830s, as you see a really sort of boom and bust economy that crashes in 1837, you see real estate speculation um, come to be one of the main debates that is um, connected with debates over preservation. So for instance, you see individuals who own what some people would be considered to be historic properties, whether that is Carpenter's Hall, kind of a public site in Philadelphia in the 1830s, or whether that is a, a private home. Mm -hmm. So you see private homes that were built in the 17th century in, say, Western Massachusetts, um, homes like Monticello, Mount Vernon, of course, in the 1830s become a part of this conversation. And so some citizens are saying, these are historic sites, they should remain standing. And the owners oftentimes are trying to sell and develop them um, to build nicer, newer buildings that will achieve higher rent. Um, the same happens in the 1850s, mm -hmm. of course, when where we started this conversation, where many people say that preservation begins in the 1850s with MCLA or with other organizations or sites. By the 1850s, this conversation about the demolition of a historic site marking capitalist greed has been going on for well over half a century mm -hmm. by the 1850s. So I, I want to uh, ask you a question I usually don't ask on the podcast, but it has to do with historiography. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Big scary word. Um, word that shall not be named. Um, yeah. history, <laughs> history of history, of course. And, and mm -hmm. this is a little bit of inside baseball, so I apologize for our, our listeners. But I seem to remember years ago when you were giving a presentation, and full disclosure, we went, we went to the same graduate program. Uh, and you were giving a presentation, and I don't remember what chapter you were presenting uh, at that point. But I, seen, I recall that a lot of people were coming back at you and saying, isn't this really just about people venerating the American Revolution? And isn't, aren't they just concerned with preserving these structures so that they can feel some kind of uh, connection to the founding generation? And you're really saying no. But how have a lot of people written about this topic before? I mean... Why have they consistently said that it is about the American Revolution? It is about the veneration of the founding generation. And they missed sort of the, the greater complexity and the nuances of what's happening here. Yeah. So revolutionary memory has been uh, a subject that a lot of historians have studied, particularly within the last 20 or so years. And that is a part of what I see. There are movements in the 1830s and 40s to preserve the Bunker Hill battlefield in Charlestown, Massachusetts, for instance, um, the homes of revolutionary worthies, right? Like Washington and Jefferson. But those sites are very much part of a, a much broader interest in historic sites. Um, we've talked about the indigenous earthworks in the Ohio and Mississippi River Valleys. But colonial homes, colonial churches, um, colonial seats of power, like the old Pennsylvania State House, of course, that becomes a revolutionary site as well. But residents of the early nation value those as part of the American history mm -hmm. that they're trying to create. Um, so for, so for advocates of preservation, American history does not start with the revolution. That's an important piece of it. 
but they're much more interested in sort of tracking and creating a historical consciousness that includes a much deeper past and moves through stages of civilization in, mm-hmm. in many ways. This is how um, how my my um, advocates of preservation, the, the subjects of my book, are looking at it. So you know they're really interested in this much longer history. Um, it's one that is a national history in many ways, but they see it as um, it would be incomplete to only celebrate the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. There's another um, book that came out last year for our listeners who might be you know, interested in more about the, the interest in colonial history in the early nation. And that is Lindsay DeKirchie's book. It's called Colonial Revivals. And she studies how a, a different um, strain of preservation, mm-hmm. and this is a preservation of books and manuscripts. And so her book looks at how the early United States was really a moment of antiquarian interest in finding colonial histories from the 18th century uh, and even the 17th century to reprint um, and to preserve in print in the early United States. So I think that my study is part of a growing conversation. I think you might find less pushback now, um, several years later, that this is really only about the revolution. Um, Of course, it was about the revolution in the fact that part of the reason that U.S residents, that many of them are so concerned with this idea of how to balance private interests in the public good is because they see themselves as trying to create a distinctly U.S. economy and society, mm-hmm. right? A Republican one that is new. So it's not that this isn't about the revolution and, and nation building. It is, but, but, but nation building, creating an economy and a society that is a, a Republican one mm-hmm. that is going to last because there's interest in the public good um, depends on uh, a, a more robust historical consciousness than one that is just centered on the revolution. So play with this idea of permanence a little bit, because you, you mentioned it a few mm-hmm. times already and it, and it is pervasive throughout your book. Uh, and it's connected to the idea of civility, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and you've talked about stages of civilization, how, um, and this is getting back to the Scottish enlightenment with, you know, what's called stadial theory. Um, and so can you, can you talk about the idea of permanence versus impermanence and why one is a marker of civilization as opposed to the other? Right. So part of the reason that historic sites are so appealing to individuals in the United States who who want to preserve them or have debates over whether they should stay put or not is because architecture is seen as a marker of civilization. Mm. And what's called permanent architecture is one of the main markers that a society is civilized. So on the one hand, you have um, people who are interested in looking for evidence of architecture that was made to be permanent, right? So those indigenous earthworks mm-hmm. in, in the minds of individuals in the 19th century show that there was a, you know, ancient civilization of Americans in their minds, in their words, that was interested in building permanent architecture. And permanence of architecture meant that there was some sort of public interest, right? That there is an interest in living in a town, in building 
structures that would be centers of town gatherings that would mean permanent society in contrast to, again, in their minds, this notion of sort of um, migrants who live for the good of their own that weren't interested in building a community. So you have them looking for permanent structures in the past, but there's a sense that for the United States to be a civilized nation, they also have to have permanent architecture. And that's not just about building new and permanent buildings. That's about finding ways to keep important structures permanent in a boom and bust economy, in a um, changing society as well. So historic sites, by making them permanent, is a way of saying, hey, the United States is civilized, not just against this notion of savage, savagery, mm-hmm. right, of um, sort of a savage wilderness that they set up in their minds as something that they're, they're taming. Um, the wilderness, but also against what they call market barbarity. Mm-hmm. So that they're, they're pushing back against this notion that development or progress is always about building new, building better. They say that capitalists are really barbaric people because they demolish things. They de- they'll demolish a church. They'll demolish independent hall. They'll de- demolish their family home. And that to them is a sign of incivil or uncivil society mm-hmm. because there's no, um, there's no permanence as a demonstration of interest in communal living or the public good. Um, and not just of citizens in current, the current day, but there the public good is defined by future generations of Americans. And that gets right back to your example of Carpenter's Hall, where there, there's a, a group of legislators who want to demolish it and build new spaces in it and remove to Harrisonburg. But there are others who are saying, actually, no, we need to keep this for the public good because it is part of the past, but also because it provides these green spaces and and whatnot that are in the public interest. Exactly. So what are some of the other ways then that you see this clash between uh, a desire to preserve or alter historic real estate and the desire uh, to profit from it? Hmm. Well, I would say that there's always a tension and the attention that I address in my book of, you can say, okay, we want to keep uh, this, we want to keep Mount Vernon permanent, or, you know, we want to make sure that Independence Hall remains standing. But there is a sense that that permanence is going to create a problem for somebody, mm-hmm. right? So Part of what I look at in my book is the rise of interest in historic homes, such as that of Mount Vernon. Um, and, you know, historic homes, for instance, create a real problem because people say, yeah, we want to save Benjamin Franklin's childhood home in Boston. But that means someone's got to pay to keep a pretty rickety old house standing mm-hmm. in the heart of Boston. So there's the tension between private interest and sort of the public good as defined by this preservation agenda is the material reality of that home. Mm-hmm. It's a moment. Nobody wants to live in an old home like that in the 1830s. No one really wants to keep shop in that either. So there's always a challenge of finding a way to make the material reality mm-hmm. of a historic structure profitable, whether that's financially or socially, for instance. So with Benjamin Franklin's 
childhood home, you see a uh, secondhand clothing salesman. His name is Peyton Stewart. He's a free African-American in Boston. He keeps shop in, in Benjamin Franklin's home. And it's a way to find a place that he can afford, presumably, but it's also a way to gain respectability. He can say, mm-hmm. hey, you know what? I'm, I'm keeping Benjamin Franklin's childhood home standing. And in fact, I'm letting potential customers come in the door and check it out for themselves. So you find that individuals are able to do keep these places standing are often doing it to achieve some sort of personal benefit. Mm-hmm. And you know, speaking of the interiors, you know, I feel like a, a lot of our conversation thus far, at least in my mind, has been thinking about the exterior uh, of a home or the exterior of a town layout or whatnot. And so you've, you've introduced the idea of the interior. And so had Americans in the colonial period into the early republic always been really interested in these interior spaces as well? Or did they make a distinction between what was inside and what was outside? You do see interest develop in different ways over time. I found a real interest in historic interiors to develop in the very sort of the very end of the 1820s and in the 1830s. And one of the ways I was able to mark this is that I saw the origin of the phrase "if walls could talk." I think that's a phrase that we, <laughs> with the phrase we use all the time, right? Yeah. Um, to say, oh, if walls could talk, right? Wouldn't they would be able to tell us all the amazing stories that happened within this home, right? So this this phrase, if walls had tongues or if walls could mm-hmm. talk, it was older than the 1830s, but it was often used before that time to refer to almost salacious stories, right? If a murder had occurred in a particular place or uh, something sort of, I don't know, lascivious had happened. Mm -hmm. But in the 1830s, you start to see individuals walk into historic homes or Carpenter's Hall and use that phrase as a way to invoke the instructive ways that historic interiors can connect us with the past and help us learn about the lives of people who used to live within them. So what we're... that was fascinating to see the, the shift in use of that term that is so common to us today mm-hmm. really marks a change in understanding and appreciation of historic interiors. So what were some of the lessons that folks were taking away uh, from those interior spaces as they were you know, communing with the dead, so to speak? So they, as accounted in, in writings, and in, in particularly in the 1830s, there's a new sense that these sites are sacred. Mm. Um, that these sites are sacred historic sites and that the interior is able to really give them a sensory experience of the past in a way that no other source can. And I use the word sacred here and you see the rise of sacred language in the 1830s and it's tempting to, to hear sacred and just think, oh, okay, so they were treating historic sites like religious sites. But in fact, sacred had a... a a different meaning. And I I speak about this a a bit in my book that it was more capacious than just religious sacred space meant space that should be set apart from market Mm -hmm. and from politics. So sacred space was really um, space that was meant to be considered special and not treated like ordinary real estate. And does that feedback into your idea that, or the notion that by visiting these sites, 
collectively people develop a, a, a historical consciousness and, and even a national identity? Yeah, I think that that having debates over what sites should be considered to be sacred, in other words, set apart from change, are um, those conversations are central to building national consciousness, historical consciousness, but but also local identity. And here's where I really think we see how local self-determination, we can, we can think about that maybe as a revolutionary um, principle or value. We see that playing out with historic consciousness. So that local interest in sight points to very distinctive paths, mm-hmm. right? It might be a French colonial path or a British one. It might be a path that started in the 17th century, or it might be one that started in the 19th century. But just as this local historical consciousness cultivates all these very distinctive histories, it also draws them together into a a broader national sense that the United States was a place um, that developed and was still developing to encompass a variety of different sites with with different paths. I'm curious, too, to know how this plays out in politics. Yeah, one of the most surprising things that I found is that advocates of preservation do not break down neatly into any political party or or faction over time from the 18th century to the, the 1850s. Instead, what I found is that the discourse of, of preservation and of, of uh, making historic sites permanent mm-hmm. is one that politicians use to criticize their opponents consistently, right? <laughs> and it's a it's a way of criticizing political opponents and saying that they are motivated by self interest mm-hmm. rather than the public good, and that economic concerns are or financial concerns are are driving them in a self interested way. The, the flip side to the discourse of preservation is what I call the politics of demolition. So when individuals demolish a site that their political opponents might think uh, could have better, could have left, been left standing, mm-hmm. whether that be a historic park or a street or a structure, they often call them greedy capitalists. Um, um. So whether that's the 1810s, the 1830s, or the 1850s, that's really a consistent strain of of, um, political discourse that I see that cuts across any sort of partisan identities. That's really interesting that they just, that it cuts across political divides and they use it, I guess, weaponize it, it sounds like you're saying, in particular ways. Yes, that's really that's really what I found, um, and yeah, I think that we could potentially even see uh, the same thing today, right? That mm-hmm. that all sides of political debates or culture wars often use the same political discourse to try to frame or discount um, the other side, mm-hmm. and I, I I can really see that earlier as well. Uh, I want to go back to the private property interest question for for just a minute because 
Uh, as you were talking earlier, it got me thinking about Mount Vernon uh, and mm-hmm. particularly Bushrod Washington, who was entrusted with Mount Vernon's care after uh, his uncle died and who didn't necessarily like it when people showed up uh, to visit and to look around. And, you know, he, in my mind, I always sort of picture him as, as uh, with Clint Eastwood's face in the early 19th century yelling, get off my lawn. Uh, and so, uh, you know, how did, how did the private owners of these historic sites deal with uh, people wanting just to stop by and, and, you know, say more than hello. They wanted to come and look around and sort of commune uh, with uh, the historic actors or the actions that had taken place in these in these uh, pieces of property. Yeah, Bushrod Washington was not alone. There were a lot of disgruntled residents of particularly of homes that got visitors that they were not happy to receive all the time. <laughs> so my book is full of accounts of people. Um, sort of overstepping, sometimes literally, uh, their welcome mm-hmm. in, in places. So you see this in uh, at Monticello. There are accounts of, as one diarist put it, making all of the peeps into peepable places, right? So you can envision <laughs> this guy putting his face up to the windows at Monticello. There was a caretaker living there at the time in the 1830s. Um, the antiquarian C.C. Baldwin, who lived in Western Massachusetts, has a diary full of accounts of him uh, going to people's homes. He was very interested in 18th century homes. So he went multiple times to the home of the Mather family, mm. Cotton Mather. And there was a descendant living there. And he you know, recounted the time that he knocked on the door and this woman opened and he said, I'm here to see the home. Uh, and I want to inspect all of the rooms of it. And she was like, no, you're not coming in my home. Uh, and so he was very offended that he would, that this woman would deny him, uh, what should be a privilege of all who are interested in cotton matter to go see the home. Um, you see this at the home of Henry Clay. You know, Mm. we've really been talking about homes that were colonial or associated with revolutionaries, but you see it later in the 19th century with Henry Clay's home, Ashland. It was built in the early years of the 19th century. And James B. Clay, Henry's son, bought bought it from the estate. And he has a lot of accounts of people showing up and, you know, not just looking in his, father's former home, but as is the case with Mount Vernon, people will cut souvenirs, right? So they will break (laughs) off tree branches to take home and make a keepsake out of. They will, um, you know, trample through gardens. This is another complaint. They'll really destroy what is a private family Mm -hmm. home. And at Mount Vernon, you you see this with generations of the Washington family. Um, Jane Washington writes about it saying, you know, I really want to do my best to allow people who are interested in honoring George Washington and, and learning about his life. I, I want to do my best to, to let them in and see the space. But on the other hand, I want domestic privacy. You know, sure. I want to raise my family in this home. There has to be a limit. And the interest in historic homes is really booming. It really booms in the 1830s, right at the same moment that there is an increased emphasis on domestic privacy. 
So to have a respectable home by the 1830s really means to have private family quarters that are set apart from the public gaze um, or the view of strangers, that to really have a domestic space that is respectable, you have to have just a family space Mm -hmm. where only your trusted friends and visitors come. So you'd receive. So it's really two different conflicting values that are rising at the same time that make living in historic houses by the 1830s and 40s, especially very difficult. I I, uh, I talked to Matthew Costello, who wrote uh, a book about you know, Washington's tomb and and the memory of George Washington, and he, you know he talked about similar things. It's just the relentless number of people showing up to Mount Vernon, wanting to see inside, and you know Bushrod, Jane, John, John the Third. They're all like, maybe not today, but you know eventually some of them do find a way to monetize it. Um, and exactly. I, and so John, yeah, John the third, he monetizes it. Right. So on the one hand, he's been criticized. He and his family were criticized mm-hmm. for not opening up Mount Vernon to view for the public. But then as soon as he monetizes it, right, as soon as he enters the relic trade and signs contracts for um, individuals to make and sell relics, as soon as he signs that contract and says, OK, we'll allow steamboats to dock at the Mount Vernon wharf, he gets criticism from the other side, right? <laughs> they say, how dare you sell George Washington's heritage and home? How dare you profit off yeah. of the sale of Mount Vernon? So families who live in these sites really are, you know, mm-hmm. to be in the uh, sort of the good side of the, the public that's writing in newspapers and in journals, they have a very fine line they have to walk. Well, and I want to actually want to I want to end where we began with talking about the MVLA here in just a moment. But I do want to raise the question of, of what's the role of the state or federal government in preserving these properties? Because now you know we're, we're often accustomed to um, state or local or federal governments uh, taking ownership of these properties because they are seen uh, in the in the interest of the public good because they are part of our shared national or a regional heritage. But in the 19th century, uh, especially in the early 19th century, the state and particularly the federal government is not really interested in doing uh, that kind of work. Why? Why isn't it? Why don't they see? Why does the federal government see its role as as being uh, the protector of the nation's cultural heritage? It's a good question, and it's one that I try try to deal with a bit in my book. It contrasts, for instance, with you know, in post revolutionary France a lot of the interest in preservation and antiquarianism in France happened by the hand of a, a national commission mm-hmm. dedicated to, to monuments. Um, in Britain, you also see antiquarian interest. It comes mainly in more private and libraries, collect, collections, um, but you do get some interest from the national government. I think in the United States, part of this has to do with with choices that people, again, are making about um, how to establish an economy and society for a republic. Mm, mm -hmm. And I think that there is a sense that, you know, there's a real interest in securing private property as, as the basis of the nation. And so I think there's a sense of, well, if citizens want to make a historic site permanent, of course, nothing's really permanent, but Mm -hmm. they're framing it as permanent then they will have to do that in a sort of self-determined way, right? The the federal government is not going to do that. And that's why we see the rise of corporations to own uh, 
property that is intergenerational, right? that is not just owned by one person and then open for sale or development as soon as that person dies. Mm-hmm. You do see interest in you know, the, the descendants of Jefferson and of Washington both propose that Congress buy Monticello and Mount Vernon mm-hmm. for preservation. Um, what that preservation looks like, you know, we haven't talked much, but we've been talking about preservation, but then there's a sure. debate over, well, what, what physically is preservation, right? Mm-hmm. And so at Mount Vernon, there was debate about having a, an agricultural school um, that Congress could buy the property and, and create an ag school at Mount Vernon. Um, so there, there, there was interest by the 1830s, 40s, and 50s that states or that the federal government could potentially buy some historic sites, um, but that never really gained traction. Mm-hmm. Well, that gets us to the MBLA then, because the MBLA mm-hmm. does step in to buy Mount Vernon uh, in the late 1850s from the Washington family. And so can you can you give us a sense of how uh, Anne Pamela Cunningham and her associates are really a, a reflection or a product of the story you've been telling in the in the for most of the book? Yeah. So as you mentioned already, you know, Mount Vernon is often cited as kind of the um the the birth of the preservation movement. And it, it doesn't take anything away from the important work that the MBLA did to say that they were actually part of a much broader conversation. Mm -hmm. And I would say an outgrowth and participant in what we've been talking about today in this podcast. So you can see that in a couple of different ways. And I give this new telling of the origins of the MVLA in my book, in the epilogue. So Anne Pamela Cunningham is really, and the the women she uh, gets on board, is very interested in the corporate structure, right? So mm-hmm. she has to create a charter to create the MVLA. And in fact, I say she's interested, but that's one of the things that she delays doing. So the MVLA cannot take ownership of Mount Vernon until they are incorporated and file a charter with the state of Virginia. Mm-hmm. So we see debates over corporate property being central to the creation of the MVLA. We also see that debates over commerce and making money and perhaps the limits on what people at the time called the rage to be rich are also part of the conversation, right? So John A. Washington receives a lot of criticism from Cunningham and from like-minded Americans when rumor has it that he is going to sell Mount Vernon basically to the highest bidder, Yeah. whether that means the development for a hotel or for a factory, right? There's all these rumors about how Johnny Washington is just like Northern capitalists, mm-hmm. um, that he will not accept anything but the but market price for the land that is Mount Vernon. And I think the third way we see Mount Vernon and Anne Pamela Cunningham's campaign um, to preserve it as part of this larger conversation has to do with family homes. And the, the conversation over how how can one preserve a family home of, uh, in this case, sort of a, a luminary citizen while keeping it private, but also making it public and yeah. opening it to tours um, and you know solving all the problems we just talked about of, of keeping it <laughs> private space, but also opening it up to sort of the um, throngs of, of visitors. Mm-hmm. And so... 
when we when we see these three strains of what I would say are the, the key debates over what preservation means in the 19th century, when we bring those to light, we can really see that the MVLA is the moment when all of those strains sort of come together at those moments at this moment in the 1850s, and it helps us to also explain and why. So many other projects of preservation are going on in the 1850s. We could look to, you know, certainly the Newburgh headquarters mm-hmm. um, is, is owned by the state of New York by 1850. But that's because a previous effort in the 1830s to buy it with a corporation had failed. And the family who owned it had defaulted on a mortgage. So it ended up in <laughs> state hands in 1850. Um, so it helps us to explain that history. It also helps us to put Mount Vernon in conversation with the debate over how to preserve Ashland, which Mm -hmm. is happening in 1853, 54, and 55. So it really helps us to see Mount Vernon as part of a a bigger picture. Well, I think that's a good selling point um, uh, for for the history of the MVLA, but but more importantly for your book. Uh, and it was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's, won't argue with that. Yeah, exactly. So there, there, there's your, there's your little trailer right there. Um, uh-huh. before I let you go, actually, I do want to ask you, uh, about what's next because I, you know, I know that writing the first book and writing any book is really, really hard, uh, and takes a lot of time. And so, uh, I know that you are uh, probably actively at work on something else right now. And so I was wondering if we might have a sneak peek about what that is. Yeah, I so I'm starting another new project about um, thinking about the history of what is often called uh, cultural heritage. Mm-hmm. So how how we came to define what it means to own the things that many people claim access and value in. So I'm looking at things like how historical societies put a value on manuscripts and pieces of art that Mm. we would say are without value, right? So how do you write an insurance policy for an irreplaceable manuscript? Um, How do congregations of historic churches try to define the value of what they see as something that can't be owned by individuals, Mm -hmm. but really is, is owned by a large body of, of people. So I'm call, calling it the cultural, or no, the corporate history, a corporate history of cultural heritage. Um, still working on that title, I guess. Well, that sounds pretty exciting. And uh, maybe when uh, we're able to travel again, uh, you can come back down to Mount Vernon and do some research because, as you might suspect, we deal with those questions all the time. And, and I am not privy yeah. to um, any of the purchases, but occasionally I do see some of the prices and I tell you what, um, dealers try to put uh, prices on some of those things. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I would love to come back down. I did several days of research at the library at Mount Vernon for historic real estate. Um, I think it would be hard to tell the history of the MBLA without coming down to your beautiful library. And I would love to come back another time. Well, uh, Whitney, congratulations on the book. It's, it's wonderful to see you again. And uh, hopefully we'll be seeing you in person soon. Thanks so much, Jim. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hildebrand. 
If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, you may do so by making a contribution to Mount Vernon. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org.